Welcome to the Philippe Matthews Show at thepmshow.tv. Named the Oprah of the Internet by Mark Victor Hansen, Philippe Matthews doesn't ask questions that are different. He simply asks questions that make a difference. The Philippe Matthews Show features entertainers, bestsellers, authors, thought leaders, change agents, and world-class experts in the field of personal, spiritual, and professional development. An Internet marketing entrepreneur, Philippe is the creator of the How Movement, dedicated to teaching people how to move from the mindset of hope to the process of how. If you are ready to take your life to the next level, move from the mindset of why to the mindset of why not. Tune in right now to this latest edition of the Philippe Matthews Show and watch your life grow. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen, on the Philippe Matthews Show, and I'm so excited to have uh, uh, what I consider to be a revolutionary guest uh, on the show with me today. Um, she is, uh, in my opinion, the uh, largest, most prolific uh, person on the planet uh, that uh, is engaged for the last 40 more years uh, in race relations and diversity. She is best known uh, for creating and facilitating the brown eye, blue eyed experience. You've probably seen her on Oprah several times and many other shows. Uh, her name is Jane Elliott. How are you, my dear? Well, I'm glad finally to get make this connection. That's how I am. <laughs> Well, so the people listening in or that would be listening in on this is that, that we had every kind of technical difficulty you could imagine. Uh, there were some people who just didn't want this call to happen today. Uh, but uh, Jane is a genius, and uh, she figured it out for us. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm going to blame it on, I'm, I'm gonna blame it on you, Jane. I'm not going to take credit. I'm going to blame it on you today, okay? Go ahead. <laughs> you have enough. Anything, so today, anything that happens good is your fault. Anything happens bad is somebody else's, because Lord knows you've been blamed for everything else bad, right? You know, this isn't a new experience for me, you understand. <laughs> okay. Let's, now, you know, we've we, we got to kind of laugh at this, because this is the heaviest topic that anybody could probably have right now in this day and age. And, and, and actually, it's been heavy ever since you had it, and it started... Uh, I remember talking to you earlier. It started when the day that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. You were uh, a third-grade school teacher, is that right? Right, first-rate third-grade school teacher. However, okay, wow, okay, and yeah. and and what area? Where, where were you located? Where was this? I was in Riceville, Iowa, a town of one thousand white Christians. Well, oh, there was what? one person there, but he was married to a Catholic, so that made him all right. <laughs> Okay, so wait a minute. Seriously, though, so the day after Martin Luther King died, you told me that a lot of the wait, people... Wait, wait, he didn't die. Wait, wait, wait. Maybe I mean, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're right. Die, die is not the proper right word. He assassinated. That wasn't a passive act. That was an aggressive assassination. The Absolutely. day after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Now, go ahead. Absolutely. Thank you for that correction. Uh, you told me that there are sir, a lot of people that came up to you celebrating that. And oh, that's yeah. when you decided that this is something going on here, and that's when you, you came up with this experience, experience. Nobody came to me celebrating it because because of my teaching previous to that. Okay. Nobody dared to come to me celebrating that. My sister called me when I was coming home from school and said, Do you, is your television on? I said, no, why? She said, you better turn it on, and they shot him. And oh, I can't, wow. I can't to this day... I can't think about that or say those words without getting a visceral reaction to it. The same one that I got that day, I couldn't believe that this society was that absolutely ignorant and bigoted and vicious. And I knew that my third graders weren't going to understand that killing because I didn't. So having remembered that the Nazis killed people based on the color of their eyes during what has come to be called the Holocaust, I decided that the next morning, if my students didn't understand what we were talking about, that not only was I going to teach them the Sioux Indian prayer that says, Oh, great spirit, keep me from ever judging a man until I've walked a mile in his moccasins. I decided that I would arrange to have that prayer answered for them. I decided to allow some of my students to walk in the shoes of a person of color in my classroom for a day. Wow. And that's where it started. And that's, that's exceptionally powerful. What did you learn from the kids, and what did you learn more so about yourself? Because based upon what you were sharing and what you've been told, you, you, it's almost impossible not to have racist views, uh, especially at that time coming up, coming up 
uh, how did this change you uh, in terms of what you learned from those kids that they were enlightened as well? The first thing I learned was how I look to people of color. Robert Burns said, if some great power the gifts could give us to see ourselves as others see us. The mm. first day of that exercise, the brown-eyed people were on top, the blue-eyed people were on the bottom, and I have blue eyes. And it didn't take but three minutes for my brown-eyed students to recognize that I was one of the inferior beings in that room. And I'll never forget the little brown-eyed student sitting in the front row who said to me after I had told them about how bad blues were and how great browns were, she looked at me and she said, how come you're the teacher if you've got them blue eyes? Mm. Immediately, I found out how it feels to be treated unfairly on the basis of a physical characteristic over which you have no control. I thought I knew because I knew about sexism. I knew about ageism. I did not know about racism. I'd been teaching about it, but I'd also been teaching it. Mm. I thought celebrated Columbus Day. Columbus didn't discover America. You can't discover a place where people are already living. They discovered it before you got there. Mm-hmm. We celebrated Thanksgiving and said how glad the, the Indians were that the pilgrims were there. The Indians weren't happy to have the pilgrims there. They put up with them until mm-hmm. they found out that they were, not, they were nothing but vicious, so-called Christian people who were willing to kill people in order to take over their property in the name of God. Uh, we teach racism in the schools on a daily basis, public, private, and parochial schools in this country. If you can get through K through 12 without being a racist, you're a miracle or a fool. You just didn't <laughs> learn wow, that's powerful. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm very wow. proud of That's amazing. You've got, yeah, you've got to make the right responses on the test if you want to complete the course of study. And mm-hmm. the right responses on the test are racist responses because it's our, our, soci- our um, social studies is racist social studies. We're seeing a story problem in the math book are sexist story problems. The whole, it's, the whole thing is it's, it's like white, tall white males have the power and they are going to exert it for as long as they possibly can. Mm-hmm. And they don't even and most most teachers don't realize what it is they're doing, and they don't they don't have the initiative or the or the common sense to say, "Now look, folks, this story problem that you're reading here puts a group of people down. So we're going to change this story problem so it, so that it's neutral. We don't do that. It takes too much time. We just go ahead and teach it as it is. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> when I was in school, when I was in first grade, I had to learn about Dick and Jane, C. Dick, C. Dick. Come, did come. Well, you couldn't put that in a in a inner city school today or in any other school. The only thing that was integrated in that school was Spock, the dog, and he was black and white. Mm-hmm. And a whole bunch of people my age and a whole bunch of people younger than I am came up through that kind of education. That's not called education. It's called indoctrination. Wow. Wow. That's a powerful piece. It's a powerful statement because you're basically saying there's there, – if you are of a certain age, a certain time, there's absolutely no way for you not to have racist tendencies or to be racist because well, it's, month, it's an indoctrination from birth. Yeah, it isn't a certain age and a certain time. It's now. Last month, my granddaughter, who was in seventh grade, and I were talking about the Mountain Meadow Massacre. When the yes, Mormon I remember leaders, that. Yes, yes, yes. And the Mormon leader sent his people out to kill all the members of uh a um, wagon train that was going across Utah. They killed all of them and tried to make it look as though the Indians had done it. Well, the cavalry came along, it was obvious that the Indians hadn't done it. Nobody was ever punished for that. I said, is your teacher teaching you about that? And she said, no, he's teaching us about, and she talked about some other massacre in which a, a missionary was killed by the Native Americans, I think is what she was talking about. I said, well, ask your teacher if he's going to teach you about the Mountain Meadow Massacre. So the next day, when I was the week, a week later, we were together on the weekend, and I said, did you talk to your teacher about the Mountain Meadow Massacre? She said, yeah, but he said he can't teach us about that because then we wouldn't love America anymore. We won't be good Americans if we know that that happened. So we, he can't teach us about that. He isn't allowed to. You think wow. that's, that's just today. This is today. This is what's called education in the United States of America today, and this was in the state of Washington. Wow. Okay. All right. That brings it home. You said there's a difference between racism and colorism. I had never heard the term colorism because I had mentioned to you or used the term white privilege, and you 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 ripped me a new you you ripped me a new one, as you as you lovingly always do. Uh, You said, "Let me tell you something about white privilege. This is not about white privilege. This is about colorism. Tell me about." Tell me about colorism and racism. How how, how does that come up? This is about white ignorance. It's not about white privilege. Mm 
And no white person is ignorant, is so ignorant that they would give up their privilege. This is a really bad, bad choice of words, white privilege. Mm -hmm. We're talking about racism. We're not talking about racism because there's only one race. Every human being living on the face of the earth today has in their genetic structure the memory of those first black females who evolved in sub-Saharan Africa from 140,000 to 280,000 years ago. Every single human being, there is only one race. The idea of racism, but several different races, came up when Linnaeus started to categorize plants according to their physical differences, and people thought, well, if it works with plants, it'll work with people. It doesn't work with people. We, there's only one race. We are all members of the same one. What we're treating, we are judging people on the basis of the amount of a chemical melanin in their skin. That's colorism. We got to call it what it is, which is colorism, because there's only one race. You and I are members of the same race. We may be different size, we may be different weight, we may be different gender, we may be different age, but we are the same race. People have to get over the idea that there is a, that there are five different races. There's only one. It's absolutely ridiculous. And when somebody says to me, "I'm a member of a biracial family," I said, "Okay, which of your pet, which of your which of you, your your husband or you, you came from outer space?" Well, neither one. Well, then you aren't a biracial family. You may, be, you may be a mosaic family. You may be a mosaic couple. A mosaic is something that is different elements put together to make a beautiful whole. That's what whole, W-H-O-L-E. That's what a mosaic is. I love that. I think I, I've never heard that, but I love that. I, I, you know, most people, I didn't even think about biracial. And yes, you're right. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. Forget about biracial and multiracial. You can be multi-ethnic, but you can't be multiracial unless mm. you are so ignorant as to believe that, look, there are 2,500 different skin colors on the face of the earth. Can you come up with 2,500 different names for races? Because if you can't, you better forget about the whole thing and just talk about color. Wow. And then, and then when you say it's all about color, all of a sudden people look at you like, well, that's kind of stupid. <laughs> and you think to yourself, and now you know. The, the real story. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, here we are in 2015 even talking about something that it's a show, social construct. It never existed. Five different races never existed. It was something somebody invented. To believe in the myth of, of pigmentocracy is just as stupid as to believe that the sun is a Greek god that goes across the sky in a golden chariot every morning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, to give up the other. So, so you were telling me about uh, uh, some of this. Also, was was kind of scripted out in this book by Ben J. Uh, Wattingberg, uh, uh, the birth, the, the birth dearth. Um, speak to me about that in terms of institutionalized racism and 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 how it's uh, picturing uh, literally uh, as we as we speak. Well, if you read. Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. And anybody, yeah, anybody who's listening to this who hasn't read it had better go out and get a copy of that immediately and get an explanation of what it is we're talking about when we talk about institutionalized racism. Mm-hmm. You can keep a whole bunch of people from voting against white interests simply by seeing to it that many of them are in jail and then they are never allowed to vote again. Convicted felons can never vote again. That in itself is institutionalized racism. You need to mm. understand that. We don't we don't think about this. We think we're getting them off the street. Oh my God! <laughs> uh, you think about the kind of history that's taught in our schools that isn't history. It really ought to be called U.S. historic hysteria, because it is not history. It mm. is it is made up stuff to keep the United States looking good. I just finished doing an interview with somebody from Belgian television. And I got, and that was last week when I was in Canada working with people in Vancouver and Powell River. And mm-hmm. I got a let two emails today from people in Estonia, one in Estonia, two in Estonia, and one in Belgium, who had seen that program, who said, this is, Estonia is a white country. We didn't have racism until we got a lot of American television. Mm. Think about that. Wow. Yeah. You, you, when I read that, I thought, oh, my God. 
We have, indeed. For years I've been saying we have exported our racism along with the other things that we export. On television, we have people's minds. And if you think it doesn't work, then you look at what ISO is doing today with modern technology, with the media. And mm-hmm. that's what we in this country have been doing with the media for a number of years. We have exported our racism all over the world. Wow. And it's time for us to take the responsibility. If we can export racism, we can also export the antidote to racism, to the poison of racism, which is education. We've got to stop indoctrinating people and start educating them. What are the fears uh, of of the uh, 1% who created and, and, and has economic power and, and keeps perpetuating uh, uh, institutional race, racism and exporting racism around the world. What are the, What do you think these fears are? Well, I think that white people are suffering from skin scare. We're scared to death that if people of color get power, get numerical majority in the United States of America, and that's what Ben Wattenberg's book is all about, The Birth Birth, they're scared to death that if people of color get power, they will want to do to us what we have done to them. Mm-hmm. It's quite certain that people of color are as craven as we white folks are who mm-hmm. want to get even with those who have wronged us. Mm-hmm. I don't think people of color want to get even with white folks. I don't think they even want to get equal with white folks because they have to, in many cases, they'd have to go backward to get even with us. But I think they want to get equity with white folks. And mm-hmm. they are guaranteed that in the Constitution of the United States. It guarantees us equitable treatment under the law. That's what people of color want. That's what women want. That's what members of the LGBTO societies want, cultured group want. They want equity. They don't want equality. You and I will never be equal. You'll always mm-hmm. be equal. I am. You'll always be younger than I am. You'll always be male. And we will never be equal. But we do. We are guaranteed equitable treatment under the law in the Constitution of the United States. I want that. And if you can make it retroactive, I'll appreciate it even more. <laughs> Absolutely. I, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because that was one of the fears that uh, in South Africa that uh, they had about Mandela when he came out. Uh, and, and that was that he was going to seek revenge on all of the racism and, and the apartheid that, that uh, was done to black folks. And uh, they literally, even after, after his death, they had systems set up for mass relocation and also killing and, and, and incarceration because they thought it was going to be a revolution and a backlash even when he died. But that's one of the first things I learned on the second day of that exercise in my third grade classroom. I was afraid when I got up the second day of that exercise on Monday morning that my blue-eyed students were going to get even with my brown-eyed students because they had said they would. If we ever get a chance, we're going to get even with them. And when I went to school that day, I was absolutely amazed. No blue-eyed person tried to get even. No blue-eyed person was as vicious to the Browns as the Browns had been to them. And on the second day, on Tuesday, after they had written their compositions about it, we got in a magic circle, and I said, you kids, why didn't you said you were going to get even with these people yesterday. Why didn't you do it? Why didn't you be as mean to them as they were to you? And almost, almost in unison, they said, because I didn't want to treat anybody the way they treated me. I didn't want to make anybody feel as bad as I felt. Yeah, I think that people of color in this country are more civilized than we white folks are. I think they have learned that this, we in this so-called Christian nation, we in this so-called moral nation, leader of the Western world, we have taught the wrong lesson. But the people of color have learned a lesson that white people haven't learned. Mm-hmm. That you don't, mm-hmm. you don't have a civil society in which part of you are behaving in an uncivilized way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You mentioned something, too, about the women's movement uh, and race relations in America. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. Uh, can you speak to me about, can you speak to us about that? The women's movement was a white women's movement. They might as well have been carrying signs that said, black women need to apply. I will never forget the black teacher in Des Moines, Iowa, at Drake University in a human relations course in those summers, who said, number one, I ain't never been on top before. You Now I know why you white people won't give it up. This feels good. Power feels good. And then some white woman said, well, what about white women, we have been discriminated against too, 
And this woman turned on her and said, don't you talk to me about the women's movement while your foot is on my husband's neck. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Now, the women's movement was allowed to succeed because it effectively killed the civil rights movement for blacks. And it was allowed to succeed because it was a white movement. And white males were in power and they allowed it to succeed. If if every white woman had gone to bat for blacks during the civil rights movement, things would be very, very different today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In my opinion. I may be wrong about all this. I'm, I'm no, I, I think you're pretty bright, Jane. I think you're pretty bright. Well, it's too, if I'm right, that's wrong. Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's painful for people to hear. It's right between their eyes when they hear about that and, and the women's movement, uh, that it was not for uh, uh, black women, and uh, it did kill the civil rights movement. And, you know, uh, I, I think we had a conversation about this, and that was one of the main reasons that they assassinated King was not necessarily because of of his, his march against racism, but it was uh, his, his uh, getting ready to to uh, uh, deal with the economic uh, yeah, issue. Parity was never, economic parity was never going to happen. If the people in power could stop it, it wouldn't happen. Yeah. It would not happen. When he had the Poor People's March on Washington, he signed his own death warrant. There's mm. no doubt about that. We could have, the white people in power in this country had the power to perpetuate racism. We have proof of that because we're still doing it. Don't tell mm-hmm. me we don't have that power because we're still doing it. Sure. But they weren't certain that they could fix the economic system if he upset it. So in order to see to it that he didn't upset it, they allowed that horror to happen. And I don't think they just allowed it. I think they cooperated with it. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. created a comment. We created a climate then in which it was all right to kill a seemingly even a shortly powerful black man and now we kill black young men on almost a daily basis for God's mm-hmm. sake mm-hmm. So, so don't tell me it has stopped don't tell me it isn't ha- happening don't tell me somebody's going to say well racism isn't the power isn't the problem anymore we have a black president we have a black president because Barack Obama President Barack Obama is one of the most fantastic community organizers you've ever seen and he organized the United States of America and mm-hmm. got the presidency. And he did it twice against a whole lot of power. And he, if he had to, he could do it again. I hope that whoever the next president is takes advantage of the skills, intelligence, and ability and connections that that man has made. Well, let's talk about that. If we have to say the hills have eyes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You said... <laughs> I meant to ask you before the call. Did you, you know, there was a quote you made when we talked about Hillary is Hillary is building drag. I, I, I just thought that I laughed on that all day. That just took me right on out. Uh, I can't remember what I said. What are we talking about here, Hillary? Talking about Hillary. Talking about Hillary Clinton, uh, and because uh, you know a lot of people say Bill Clinton was the first president, what have you. You're joking me, what have you? Uh, what, what is your opinion on 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 that? Uh, that would, she would be able to mend these relationships. She's kind of speaking about it publicly um, as, in terms of the mass incarceration issue and uh, the, the the disproportionate uh, killings of, of of black youth and black men uh, in this country. Uh, do you think that's just political rhetoric to get votes and to get uh, uh, people to rally around her? Do you think she's going to get in there and make some actual change? If she makes a lot of noise about it before the election, she won't get elected. Mm, interesting. There's no way that, I just think that can't happen because mm-hmm. the power structure is going to see to it that most black, many, many blacks aren't allowed to vote and Hispanics, Latinos, won't be allowed to vote because of the new, new uh, Jim Crow laws that we've got all over the country, coming up all over the country. So how she could get elected by, oh, group of white people who do not want to face up to their own racism or to the racist behaviors and principles and policies in this country, how she could get elected if she voices opposition to that racism, I'm not sure she could get elected. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, well said. Um, and, and Bill Clinton didn't do, didn't, wasn't horribly active in that area. During his eight years, he was active in some areas, but not we that. We know that. We know he that. But 
But there's a class of people that just don't get it. They don't they don't know because he went on our Sidney Hall show at the time playing the saxophone and admitted to smoking pot. That was kind of like his endearing to to us. But uh, to but to those that are educated and and well read and well informed, we know uh, that Clinton didn't really do much. If anything, some in some aspects exacerbated it, especially in terms of uh, the mass incarceration aspect. Well, the mass incarceration hasn't stopped, isn't going to stop. It's one way we control young black males. Yeah, yeah. We're scared to death of young black males. Sure. It's really interesting to walk down the street (laughs) with a white woman and see three young black males coming toward you and watch her clutch her purse and get against the side of the building. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Be in an elevator with another white woman and have a couple of black people males get into the elevator and the the white woman shudders against you and moves to the side of back of the elevator. It's it's like it's like a, a learned response that we got to recognize and unlearn. Anything you learn you can unlearn. We could mm-hmm. unlearn. We chose to. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about poverty, the economics of, of racism because uh, where there's poverty uh there's going to be uh, a disproportionate amount of people that are uh, of African of African descent that are poor. It is designed uh, to be that way. Uh, what is your take on that uh, between poverty uh, and uh, racism? Send your products overseas to be made by people of color who work for a lot less money and who are not members of the union. Put people in this color, people of, con- of color in this country, out of work, and when they act like they're destitute, dis- describe them as being lazy and not wanting to work, even though the jobs have gone overseas. It's called blaming the victim. It works beautifully. We have been doing it for several years, but it's gotten a lot worse in the last 16 years. Wow. We have been. Sanders is right. He says we're destroying the middle class, and we are. But more importantly than that, we're destroying, uh, we are contributing to the image of people of color as being lazy and shiftless and not wanting to work. Mm-hmm. But you have to have a chance at a job. Interestingly enough, 60 some percent of people who are able to work in this country are employed. I read those statistics someplace this week. The other 37 percent who aren't employed are, for the most part, disabled or have some other reason for not being able to work. Mm-hmm. There are there are jobs for you if you will work for the, the kind of money that you work for if you lived in China or India. Mm-hmm. And if you don't want to work for those wages, that means you're lazy and shiftless. I would like to see the members of the House of Representatives work for minimum wage, try to live on minimum wage mm-hmm. a week. Mm-hmm. Not a year, not a month, but a just week. Just a week, just a week. Yeah, just a week. Live on minimum wage for one week. Well, it take a, well, a month would be better because then they'd have to figure out how whether they were going to heat their houses or eat their lunch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are old people, older people, seasoned citizens like myself, who in the wintertime in Iowa and in many other places in the United States have to make the decision as to whether to heat or eat in the wintertime. Mm, mm-hmm. Some people want to do away with Social Security. Do you realize what a mess we're in right now? I don't think most Amazing. people do. No, I don't think so either. It's one of those things when you, you can't see the forest for the trees because you're in survival mode, so you can't really see what's going on. Well, um, maybe if you're living all right, What's the matter with the rest of you people? Pull yourselves up by your boots. Yeah, exactly, exactly. If yeah. you can't afford boots, how do you pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Right. Yeah, very well said. Well, very well said. Uh, so poverty, in another sense, uh, creates criminality. Uh, you know, if, when you were talking earlier about Jim, the uh, new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, uh, she clearly showed uh, that those who are, have the opportunity for those first 15 years to get an education and then to have uh, access to uh, jobs, that at one point there was the, the crime rate was so low they were thinking about closing many prisons because there was just not enough crime uh, to keep the prisons open. It was not making any money. It was a deficit. Um, but poverty uh, and, and uh, economic castration creates and trains a criminal, does it not? Creating poverty is criminality. 
But well, we Jim. don't think of it that way. We don't think of it that way. We create a situation in which you can't get a job, or or you call the employer and he says, come in and we'll interview you, and you walk in and he looks up and says, oh, I filled that job this morning when he sees the color of your skin. Mm-hmm. That ought to be declared criminal, but you can't prove it, you see. Now you have to prove, as a, I think in the 70s or 80s, I can't remember which, uh, they passed a law that says you have to prove that there was racist intent in what was done. In other words, you have to know what's in that person's head in order to win a racist law, a, a, suit, a, a lawsuit against racism. Not possible. Mm-hmm. So it made it impossible to win those lawsuits. So it made it perfectly comfortable. It made employers who didn't want to employ black people, made, it perfect, made them perfectly comfortable. You can't prove that what I did was racist, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. It's up to you to prove that it was racist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. And, it, and, and it's unbelievable that the media would treat what happened in Baltimore that way as, my God, you would have thought that Paris was burning. And then go to Seattle on the 1st of May and just, it was sort of a lark for those people who were doing those disgusting things in Seattle because they were mostly white and it was about workers' rights, supposedly. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, all, you know, it's all how we use words. words. Somebody has said words are the most powerful weapon devised by humankind. We show people with words in this country. And I think oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, speaking on that, uh, thug being the new N-word, your thoughts on that? Thug, yeah. Oh, isn't it wonderful? Um, you hear thug, you hear thug with your physical ears, but you hear the N-word mentally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know it, and I know it. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's now the, the accepted way to pigeonhole a group of people. Now, there are a whole bunch of thugs, in the real sense of the word, in the Congress of the United States. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very well said. In my well, opinion. In my uh, opinion. Well, your opinion definitely matters. Um, uh, but, Jane, let's be a devil's advocate here. But, Jane, you know, uh, the N-word is part of our, you know, culture. It's part of the rap culture. It's a term of endearment. It's in music now. Um, it's, it's, it's not really what it's intended to be. What are your thoughts on that crap? <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry, I'm biased. There's a book called Free. Um, there's a, I can't remember the name of the book, but it's a book written by a man who says that when you try to remove language words from another person's language because to make yourself more comfortable, you are removing their freedom of speech. You don't have that right. If it's you don't have the right to take words away from another group to make yourself feel better. You know, it's free for, free speech for me, but not for thee, is what it mm. amounts. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wish I could remember the name of the man who wrote the book about that, because it's absolutely excellent. I'll look it up. I'll find it, because everybody should read that book. Absolutely. Free speech for me, but not for thee. It's something like that. And it's it's just a really... It's a really good description of why you do not limit somebody else's ability to express themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have a problem with hate speech, but I think it's hateful if you tell somebody that a word that has you have used in order to take the power of it away from the white people who use it, and that's the way that's the reason black people use that word. The ones who are using it are using it to prove that we have power over this word, and you can't stop us. Mm-hmm. But we, we white folks, are determined that we are going to control every aspect of your life, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we are going to force you to live down to our expectations of you. We are even going to take away from you your language. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Tell us how you really feel about it, Jane. Uh, it's a heavy topic. Free speech for me, but not for thee. By Write that down and look it up on your computer. Oh, well, definitely, and people listening will definitely go and, and, and get that. Earlier, when we started this conversation, you mentioned a few times, and it's, you know, not that this is not a controversial topic and subject already, but, you know, what the hell, let's just go there. Uh, <laughs> you can't have a conservative conversation with Jane Elliott. It's just not possible. Um, <laughs> you get uh, it, no, 
No, you, you, no, I don't. I don't even even upon your your death, it would not be a conservative funeral. It would just be, oh my God, it's Jane Elliott. Are you serious right now? What's going on here? We have to talk about this. Um, you giving us a call. You mentioned Christianity. Uh, you know, good good Christians and what have you. And you know, I have a real problem with African Americans, blacks, my people, and Christianity. Um, because for you know obvious reasons, but you know it's 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 a a conversation that can get you harmed uh, in certain circles. What is your feeling on religion and Christianity on black people? Well, I think religion and Christianity are two opposite terms. <laughs> Quite frankly, we we have so misinterpreted the Bible and so used picked the phrases we want out and discarded the rest. That's what we do. We have used the Bible to keep people down. However, I think black churches have been the savior for a whole lot of black people. I really mm-hmm. believe that. They mm-hmm. have gotten strength from black black churches that they won't that they don't get anywhere else. Mm-hmm. They have a place there where they are accepted and where the person whom they are worshiping had according to the Bible feet of bronze and kinky woolly hair. Mm-hmm. And where everybody knows that Jesus couldn't have looked uh, like the baby Jesus couldn't possibly have looked like the little Pillsbury doughboy. He was born in the Middle East, and he looked like the people on whom we are dropping bounds today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He had dark skin, dark hair, and dark eyes. But we had three white folks. That's one of the main differences between white people and people of color is when white people come into a new environment, they immediately adjust, adjust the environment to fit their needs. When people of color come into a new environment, they adjust their needs to fit the environment. Mm. And we have done exactly that thing with the Jesus. We have made Jesus a blonde-haired, pale-skinned, blue-eyed little boy when he couldn't possibly have been so. And we've turned God into an old white man with a long gray beard who looks like Charles and Heston playing Moses. Mm. Now, God, in my opinion, is a spirit and has neither gender nor color. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we have we white people, unfortunately, many of us. And I talked. I talked to a black minister day before yesterday. He'll never speak to me again. I hung up on him. I was doing a radio interview with him, and he went into this horrendous, horrendous diatribe about how awful gays and lesbians are, and how they're trying to destroy Christians. And oh I came, un, yeah, I came unglued, and he has has a school. Did he know he was talking to you? Well, yeah, he called to talk to me, so I said, oh, well, okay, we can do that. And Some people, you don't say certain things, too. Jay Elliott is one of them. Oh, my and, gosh. Oh, my. And he went into this long spiel, and I said, you know something? If you want to talk about gays and lesbians, you let me know, and I, I, can, give you, I can give you chapter and verse on that one, too, but I am not going to spend my time defending something that I know is natural and you think is unnatural and sinful. I don't have time for that. You want to talk about racism? I'll be happy to do that. If you don't want to talk about racism, I'm done. Well, I, I said, I'm done. I hung up. Wow. I, I don't, have to, I don't have to do that. I don't have to do that. I, you Absolutely know, not. Absolutely not. Well, but, but speaking on that, that's the, that's the ignorance. That's the, 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 the blindfold. That is the albatross that still is around many black folks' neck. Uh, and and I, I, I like that you differentiated religion versus Christianity. But... Uh, there was I, re- I remember seeing this uh, uh, when I was a kid, uh, and, and it recently uh, popped up uh, again. Ebony Magazine uh, uh, sent out this, I think, in like 19, I want to say 68, 69, somewhere in that area. They sent out the cover of Ebony Magazine with a black Jesus on it. And they almost ended up shutting, ah, yeah, this is in the, in the late 60s, early 70s. They they almost shut down the almost had to shut down the uh, uh, Johnny's publishing because so many people sent in pictures of the white Jesus. Uh, this is African Americans now uh, of, the, of the white Jesus. So the indoctrination uh, is within the generation. Is that going to come out, or do we have to kind of birth rate our way out of it uh, into a, a new paradigm here? Well, you're going to have to educate your way out of that because that wouldn't have been possible. But, but this, when I told this man that the first modern human being was a black female, he said, well, where did you hear that? I said, well, it's 
a matter of biology. But it, it, and, then, and then he just got so upset about that that I didn't get to tell him that in the Bible, if you're going to talk about the beginning, the first man was made out of dirt, and dirt in the Garden of Eden had to be either black or brown because it was the result of vegetation falling from the trees and rotting on the ground, and that turns brown and black. I'm a farmer. I know that. So our first man was undoubtedly a man of color. Eve was made out of his rib. All bone tissue is white. So the first couple was a mosaic couple. Get over it. Do you, do you do you walk down the street, Jane, with uh, in in a Pope mobile with like bulletproof vests? And I mean, honestly, you just tick off everybody. Oh, I do. You <laughs> <laughs> you, you need to piss off your own your own white friends, uh, the, the economic people, uh, the religious people. Oh my goodness, <clears throat> Jane, you can always come to my house. You're safe here. You can always tell me you got a safe place here. But where else do you go? I mean, my goodness. <laughs> Very few places. But E.L. Doctor, yeah. the author said, it is the job of the author to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the job of the person who wants to end this colorism nonsense, this racism nonsense. People, white people of good intentions need to realize that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. It takes, ac- it takes action to change this. And we could change it if we chose to. You know it, and so do I. Oh, absolutely. So the question then is, I put me, putting you on the spot, not that you're not used to that uh, place. <laughs> uh, putting you on the spot, what should be the first conversation or action between both white folk and black folk what should black folk do? What should a white person do individually? And then see if that can spread out collectively. What do you think are the first uh, uh, aspects of, of, of healing and educating that relationship? The first thing they should do is contact the people who published the book, The Color of Man, and insist that that book, be in every classroom, in every school, public, private, and parochial in the United States of America, and that every teacher read it and digest it and teach it to her students, because education is the answer to this problem. We have been miseducating people for 400 years in this country. We could spend the next 400 years educating people, and after a couple after a couple decades of real education, you wouldn't have to worry about racism or sexism or ageism or homophobia or any of the rest of this stuff because you'd have an educated society. We do mm. not have an educated society. You need mm. to go to school and need to take the words under God out of the pledge. It doesn't belong there. It was never there until about 1955. Dwight Eisenhower allowed the Knights of Columbus to lobby their congressmen and get the words under God inserted into the pledge, thereby making it into a little prayer that every child, third through sixth grade at least, has to stand up in the morning, put their hands over their hearts, and say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag with the words under God in it. You can't have separation of church and state when you're pushing God down these kids' throats all day. This is ridiculous. Mm. What's wrong there? It wasn't there until I think it was 1955 that was put in there. We need to we need to get rid of that. We that is that has not been helpful. That is not fair to the kids whose parents are agnostic or atheist. They shouldn't have to do that. Mm-hmm, they, mm-hmm. You know, and those those uh, Muslim children who have to stand up and say that they aren't allowed to put Allah in there, and those Jewish Absolutely. children aren't allowed to put Yahweh in there, mm-hmm, and those mm-hmm. children aren't allowed to leave it out. So the last couple of years that I taught third grade, I told my kids they didn't have to say the words under God in the pledge. Because it's not right. If you want to pray, as it says in the Bible, and I told this minister, and I forgot that I was talking to a minister when I said it. As it says in the Bible, and when you pray, do not pray on the synagogue, in the synagogues or on the street corners as the Pharisees do. But you, when you pray, go into your closet, and when you've closed the door, talk, pray to your father in secret, and he will answer you publicly. I could get all the churches in the United States closed if we believed in the Bible. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much, pretty much. I, you know, you, you talk about a brave new world, Jane. Um, <laughs> not judge, folks. Don't judge me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Go ahead and judge me, but not if you're a Christian. We, you, you've been doing this since the, the assassination of Martin Luther King. Has there been any changes 
in your perspective? We were, we were doing well during Jimmy Carter's presidency. And I know that'll, that will hit a raw nerve with everybody that's listening, if anybody still is at this point. But we were really doing well. And then we got into a really conservative bent in this country, and we have taken steps backwards since then. Mm. When, you've got, when you've got a number of states that have outlawed abortion, in other words, told women they don't have the right to do what they choose to with their own bodies, mm-hmm. you have taken vast steps backwards. We have a constitutional amendment. Roe versus Wade, you know, we got the right. Women got the right to decide whether or not to carry a pregnancy to full term. We well, I'm sure you're. I'm sure you're familiar with the eugenics of of of, of Planned Parenthood and 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 what have you, and, and that Planned whole. Parent, Planned Parenthood is exactly what uh, the birth dearth is all about. Sixty percent mm-hmm. of the sixty percent of the fetuses, according to Ben Wattenberg, that are being aborted in this country every year are white. And he says if we could just keep that sixty percent alive, that would take care of our birth dearth. That's what that's what the right to life movement is all about. More white babies being born, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I am totally opposed to that. It's about it's about population control, and we are going to have more white babies and fewer children of color. This is a crime against humanity, and and it's a sin. You cannot do this. Absolutely. So basically, it's 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 a it's a, sit on a, a sundry of systems that are set in place to minimize the population of African Americans and black people. Absolutely. Black yeah. Absolutely. If you can't starve them out, you keep them from being born. And if they, if they grow up, you put, well, you, you know, have them in a, a generational poverty, and then so they'll go into crime, so then we can lock them up. Um, well, well, wait, wait, wait. They'll go into what we call a crime if a person of color does it. Not ah, necessarily okay. if a white person does it. When they were right. rioting in Baltimore, that was a crime. When they were demonstrating in Seattle, that was a demonstration. Wow. Well, oh, yeah. our our yeah. our, um, our language is is geared to perpetuating the status quo. Yeah, you know, I have to have you come back on because you know, you you the person that I would just sit there and I can I could literally talk to you for just days, not just hours or or days. We could talk you about this could, forever. You mean you could listen to me because you haven't had a chance to get three years inside? Good point. Me. Good point, Jane. Good point. <laughs> I won't argue with you on that. But it's been the most enjoyable listening I've ever had in my entire career. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I dare not interrupt you. <laughs> uh, but but you know, how can people? What are you doing now? I know you. You. I think you said you had something where you were on some international council. You were speaking uh, uh, overseas. I mean, what? So what is life like now for you? Uh, and how can people get? Uh, 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 more information about this and have this. Are you still teaching this in schools? Are you still going and doing that? Or can people uh, initiate this in their own uh, church or school or or place of... uh, Yeah, I still still make presentations wherever people will pay me to do it or wherever schools will not. I go to schools without being paid to do it because I'm, I may be the one, the one day in some classrooms where they hear some truth <laughs> and where it's wow. unvarnished truth. And, I, and, and that's not conceit on my part. That's just, that's just the plain fact that if you're a teacher in many schools today, you dare not teach the truth because um, that's just not – speaking truth to power is not a popular thing to do. Mm-hmm. So if you don't mm-hmm. want to lose your job, you have somebody else come in and say the things that are unpleasant. But that's that mm. often. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But right now, I'm. I have had to cancel a bunch of jobs because I'm helping my son, who is trying to recover from uh, stage four nasal pharyngeal cancer. And uh, blessings to him. He's he's doing much better. He's kind of having some immune issues, but he's, he's the cancer is in remission. Is that right? Uh, he, yeah, it's in remission. But you have until you've been through chemo and radiation treatment. Or watch somebody go through it. You have no idea what that's like. Yeah. And I feel such sympathy for every person, if there are still any people listening to this, who have gone through that, or have relatives, or friends, or or family members who have gone through that. I I just if if there works, I pray that we find a cure for cancer. We've spent enough money to do it. We could have cured it. I think. 
that yeah, is that's, a, a, that's another conversation we can definitely have. Yeah, it certainly controls the population. I just it does. Really, I, I think it's possible to cure cancer. It has to be. It has to be. We can't allow this. This, you know, but then racism is like cancer as far as I'm concerned. It could be cured, too. Absolutely. You said uh, you love to quote Nathan uh, uh, Rushstein. He says, prejudice is an emotional commitment to ignorance. That, yep, I believe that. I believe he was right, and I wear it on a shirt. And I, I never fail to get a, a response when I walk through an airport. <laughs> it's funny. Someone people's face is just tightened up, and it's like, kill, kill, kill. And I'm thinking, you know, that B word, <laughs> that B word, which is an acronym for being in total control, honey. And then others look at me, and their faces just light up. And, and the flight attendants will say as they walk past me, I love your shirt. And I wear it deliberately to make people think. Well, Jane Elliott, you have made me, us, the world, and the nation think for uh, more than four decades. And we continue to thank you for that. I continue to thank you for that and wish you four more uh, to, to try and make some kind of educational change in this. It's, 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 uh, it's pretty bad. It's pretty daunting. Uh, but I think... You know, this new generation, they're they're pretty strong and they're pretty smart and they're pretty bold and they're doing some, some things that a lot of the older folks like myself are scared to do. Um, so I, I'm, I'm very hopeful and very prayerful that it's going to work out. Well, we thank you very much for the, the compliment, but we need to challenge these children to be better than we are. Absolutely, absolutely. I want you to come back, so I uh, thank you for, for today, but I, this is a home for you so and a safe haven. So I love you. Thank you so much for being a friend and being a, a fighter in this. Uh, we'll talk to you soon, Jimmy. Okay, thanks for the call. Bye. All right, then. take care. Bye-bye. You too, bye.